three sermons left in this series on the Gospel of Luke, which we started, I don't even remember how long ago. Um, by God's grace, it looks like we will finish two weeks from today in time for the first Sunday of Advent, uh, the following week, just as planned. Now that I've said that, I'm thinking I've, I've almost guaranteed that I'm going to get sick one of those two weeks, and we'll have to delay it. So Richard, yeah, you might want to be... Oh, he's gone, and Richard's not going to, so now it's, it's for sure to happen. Somebody's going to have to, Jerry, somebody, somebody, somebody prepare a sermon, because I'm, I'm doomed now, but um, at any rate, it looks like we will finish in, in time for an Advent series, uh, but we have come to Luke 24 and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, so the calendar is difficult to keep up with these days, judging by the weather, it was spring or even summer just this past Wednesday, and now we're back to autumn, and we're preparing for Christmas, but here at church, it's going to be Easter Sunday for the next three weeks, uh, which sounds pretty good to me. Christ is risen. There we go. I'm have to work that in, but I actually need to start today by giving an overview of this whole chapter, uh, because Luke is developing one, one big point across these three sections here. Luke's account of the resurrection has some unique features. Uh, the middle section uh, on the road to Emmaus is totally unique to Luke, and there are just some other ways that he tells uh, the, the story of Christ's resurrection that work to emphasize his, his main purpose in writing. Um, just as an FYI aside, uh, you may have you may, might be aware of some of the differences in the different gospel accounts of the resurrection, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time listing and reconciling some of those differences. Uh, the difference in, in the details really just boils down to different writers, including different details of the, the same story because of their unique purpose in writing. So, you know, if Matthew and Mark just mention an angel, and Luke says there were two angels, that's not a contradiction, right? It's not like Matthew said... Uh, they, they counted exactly one angel, no more, no less, and the number of the angels was, was one, and one was the number of the angels. Two angels is right out. Now, that, that's an easy one. There are more complicated differences, but they all boil down to different writers, including different details of the events of that Easter morning. And there's a time and place for considering how they, they fit together, but... Um, for us today, talking about the Gospel of Luke, I want to simply focus on what Luke does include and what is his key purpose, what is he telling us that he, want, he wants us to draw from uh, this account of the resurrection. And one really interesting feature of Luke's account is how long it takes before we feel like we've got full confirmation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. At the end of today's section, today, today's text, we still haven't seen the risen Jesus appear to anyone, only an empty tomb and some angels speaking. In the second section, this, this road to Emmaus section, uh, he, he, he does appear to these two followers of Jesus, but they don't know it's him until they get there, and he gives them the Sunday school lesson to end all Sunday school lessons, and they break bread, and as soon as they do recognize that it's him, he just he disappears and it's not until the third and final section that Jesus appears to his followers. They speak with him. They realize it's him that they're talking to. So almost three-fifths of this chapter, the resurrection almost does feel like a, a rumor, like a UFO sighting almost, or an idle tale, as the disciples call it. So that progression, just, just to outline that again, 
first section we'll talk about today, Jesus is missing from the tomb, but the women remember his words that he spoke about the resurrection. The second section there, Jesus is present but not recognized, and he rebukes these disciples, these followers, for not believing what the word said about his resurrection. And then even in the third section where Jesus finally reveals himself, and they know it's him, confirms that he's risen in the flesh, that he can even eat boiled fish, or broiled fish, rather, opens the minds of his followers to understand how the scriptures point to his death and resurrection. Even after he's confirmed that it's him and that he's risen, they still need their minds open to grasp the scriptures before they fully get it. So what's common to each section is this sentiment, you guys should have known Jesus is risen because of the word of God, and it's the word of God that they really need their eyes opened to. So the big theme for Luke is the witness of the word of God to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This goes back to Luke's main purpose in writing this book, which he so helpfully pointed out in Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught, certainty or, or confidence. So the, the upshot for us is that Luke's main purpose is not to show us necessarily what the resurrection means for us, which he generally assumes we already know. His main purpose is to point us to the word of God as the ground of our confidence in the truth of the resurrection. He's ultimately calling us to trust God by trusting the word God has spoken. Now, just a preview of coming attractions. The third gospel, or the third section does get into some of the meaning and implications of the resurrection, so we will um, get there in a couple weeks. Uh, the second section next week has an interesting statement about why they didn't believe or trust the scriptures. So if it seems like I'm raising a lot of questions about sort of faith and, and reason, faith and evidence. Uh, we might get there next week. I don't know. I haven't written it yet. But today we need to finish the story of these women who have been following Jesus since he started his ministry back in Galilee. Uh, we talked about them last week, and I said I wouldn't say that much about them because we're going to talk about them this week, so I better do that. Um, and the women are also related to the purpose of Luke's writing, I believe. One of the reasons his readers needed to grow in their confidence is the fact that Christianity at that time in the early church was attracting so many women. Um, in that period, it was already considered abnormal for men and women to worship together in any sense. What are they doing with these women in their worship? But women were also considered to be inferior or, 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 inferior or defective as human beings. Uh, some Jewish teachers considered it better to burn the scriptures than to teach them to a woman. Uh, so what does it say about this religion that it's especially attractive to all these simple-minded, emotional, easily deceived women? That's their view. I'm not, that's them. That's them. That's not me. I just want to be clear about that. I don't want to sleep on the couch. And not only women, but also poor people and slaves and just in general losers. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Well, thanks a lot, Paul, right? I should put that in a, the newsletter, you know, 
You guys are a bunch of rejects. Uh, that's what the gospel is attracting. This new religion of Christianity isn't attracting the best and brightest. How embarrassing. What does that mean for Christianity, right? And part of Luke's response to that is to double down and say this is not a bug. This is a feature of the gospel. And this was a feature of Jesus' ministry from the beginning. The whole story of Jesus. We say God came to seek and save the lost. Not to pat righteous and powerful people on the head and say, aren't you doing such a good job, right? Think back to the very beginning of the book of Luke. An angel came to Zechariah as he was serving as a priest, a righteous priest, Zechariah, said, you're going to have a son, even though you and your wife, you're both old as dirt. And Zechariah, the respectable priest, did not believe, right? And what happens next? An angel comes to Mary, this young woman, and says, you're going to have a son without any involvement from a human male. And also that son is going to be God's son, and he's going to save his people. And Mary says, let it be to me according to your word. So she believes and submits to the word that God has sent to her. So there's this symmetry almost between the birth of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. You see, women believe when men who ought to know better doubt. And that brings us up to the women in today's passage. We actually saw this same group not long ago toward the end of chapter 23, the previous chapter. They were among those acquaintances standing at a distance and watching the death of Christ on the cross unfold. And Luke specifically identified them at that point as the women who had followed them from Galilee. And he identified the same way in in last week's text as we were talking about Joseph and the women preparing uh, uh, spices and uh, caring for the body of Jesus. Again, he says, the women who had come with him from Galilee. Galilee is where Jesus uh, was essentially from and started his, his earthly ministry. We actually met these women all the way back at that point in Luke's gospel in chapter 8. Uh, it says, Jesus went on through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out and Joanna the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. You may recognize two out of three of the names of those uh, women as having a significant role in the ministry of Christ. They helped to finance it. And they were in the background until last week's passage, the crucifixion. They were there when most of the disciples had fled. Uh, Women now, as we saw last week, have prepared spices and ointments to care for the body of Jesus. Again, they didn't practice embalming like maybe the Egyptians, but they uh, would anoint the body with with spices to cover the smell of decay. But they couldn't carry their preparations with them to the tomb until the Sabbath was over. That would be considered work. So they got there, as it says, on the first day of the week at early dawn. Uh, Early dawn or deep dawn means that the sun is barely up. This is the earliest time when they could possibly do this. They did not waste any time. But as we know, when they got to the tomb, Jesus' body was gone, and it says they were perplexed. They didn't know what to think. Uh, They are standing there perplexed. What is going on? It's showing up there. You know, I had this. I keep forgetting. I forgot to do it this week. I can control it 
with my phone, and it's much easier because I can just tap on the verse that I want. All right. So these two men appear in dazzling apparel. The dazzling apparel, we should clarify, does not mean they were just flashy dressers. They did not walk in from their gig at Cirque du Soleil or the Lawrence Welk show. These blindingly luminescent clothing is, it tells us that they're supernatural, right? Right. The, the women bow their faces to the ground in terror. That tells us that they are reacting the way people react to angels. So the angels may appear basically humanoid. They're not covered with eyeballs and wings, I guess, but they are still terrifying. Verse 23 next week, uh, they are specifically called angels, but Again, notice that symmetry between the beginning and ending of Luke, right? Almost like a bookend here. We have an angelic announcement to women, just as we had an angel appear to, to Mary at the beginning. In this case, though, the angels don't announce anything new. They point the women back to a message that they had already heard. Remember how he told you while he was in Galilee. Uh, they start, though, by asking a question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? I don't know whether we should call this a rhetorical question. I, I think based on the way they're, they're reminding these women of what they should already know, it's, it's almost more of a rebuke. It's a rebuke question, if you will. What are you doing here? You're looking for Jesus. Why would you look for him where these dead people are? We know why they looked there, right? They saw that Joseph of Arimathea had, had laid the body of Jesus there. They're planning to take care of a dead body. Where else would they go? But they went to the tomb to find Jesus, and Jesus is not dead. He's not here on the tomb, the angels tell them. He has risen, and they should have known this because he mentioned it all the way back in Galilee. Remember how he told you that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. This is a prophecy of Jesus that was recorded while he was in Galilee in Luke chapter 9 verse 22. Jesus said the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So it's day three ladies, you should know he's not here, right? Uh, for the college students and probably faculty among us, it's a bit like when the instructor says this was in the syllabus which I gave you on day one. Also, I gave you many reminders. This wasn't a one-time saying of Jesus either. Luke chapter 18, no longer in Galilee, he's on the way to Jerusalem, says we are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. I quoted that second passage from Luke 18 because it helpfully points out that Jesus didn't teach this as a completely new revelation. He taught it as fulfillment of scripture, as written about the Son of Man by the prophets. In other words, the Old Testament. This isn't completely new. This is fulfillment of scripture, which Jesus authoritatively teaches his followers I'm highlighting this because it helps us put together the, the big picture of Luke 24, Luke's big goal of encouraging us to trust the word of God. We weren't around while Jesus was in Galilee. We didn't hear Jesus say these words, but we still have the scriptures that he himself taught. And for the women that day, 
It is their recollection of Christ's teaching at the scripture, of the scriptures that, that really make all of this click. Not the empty tomb itself, which they saw and they're simply perplexed by it. It's the angels telling them to remember what Christ had taught them from God's word. And so Luke tells us they remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and the rest. So where it says in verse 8, they remembered, I take that remembrance to be more, more than just kind of saying, oh yeah, I remember that he said that, but I didn't know what it meant then and I still don't know what it means now. Think of the passage where Jesus had denied, uh, Peter rather, had denied Jesus three times. And then Luke says he remembered what Jesus said when Jesus predicted this would happen. There's a, there's a recognition, the words he didn't believe when Jesus first said them, he now understands and believes. This is what Jesus was talking about. Now I see. Or compared to, it's a different gospel writer, uh, but John chapter 2, when Jesus says, tear down the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days, John gives us an extra note that after the resurrection of Christ, the disciples remembered what Jesus had said about the temple and believed the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. So I think it's implied here when it says they remembered his words that they believed the words as well. So the women go and tell all these things to the eleven and the rest. I take all these things to mean not simply just a, a bare bones reporting of what happened to them with no conclusion. I think they're reporting that Christ is risen. And the men folk, as we saw, don't believe them because they think their words to be an idle tale. Luke's point, I don't think, is that women are wise and men are foolish. We can discuss whether that is true later on or not. I have a feeling I've pretty much doomed myself to having that conversation with at least one individual, but we've had it before, so that's nothing new. Uh, but that's not what Luke is getting at here. Now, the women still needed reminding from the angels before they really remembered and believed. They didn't get it right away earlier, although they did get it sooner, and they do look a little better in this passage than the disciples. Just, just think about it. The men who will be charged with delivering the good news of the risen Lord Jesus to the world the first time they heard that news, they did not believe it. They disbelieved. It's the verb form of the word unbelief. They were unbelieving. They thought it was just an idle tale. The word there that Luke is using for idle tale was often used in a medical setting when someone has a high fever or dementia and they're just... The words are coming out, but it's just utter nonsense. The women are just upset and hysterical. You know how it is when women get emotional, right? Now, again, their attitude, not, not, saying, not saying anything. The one possible exception to that attitude, of course, is Peter there in verse 12. He gets up and runs to the tomb. And I think based on what John records in John's gospel, that Peter probably does believe at this point. But Luke really doesn't draw that out for us. It just says he's, he's marveling at what had happened. Uh, but Peter is the one who is at least willing to investigate what the women said. Not just willing, but he is eager. He runs to the tomb, right? Why would Peter be the one to do this? 
what do we know about Peter? Last we saw him, he was weeping bitterly after he denied Christ three times. He has good reason to want Jesus to be alive, to want this message to be true, because he failed Jesus, and he is racked with guilt and shame. Remember, back when we looked at uh, the last discourse when Jesus predicted Peter's denial, I pointed out that Peter is the one that Jesus called to restore his brothers, the other disciples, after the devil's attack on them. Peter, the, the disciple who would fail the hardest after Jesus arrests. Why would you choose Peter? Not because Peter was the strongest, I don't think, but because Peter would know his weakness more intimately than the rest. And I believe it's because Peter had come face to face with his, his cowardice, with his sin, that he has the most accurate and, and, and real sense of his own guilt and shame, that he is the most eager to come to Jesus when he hears of the resurrection. And I think that's the point of all of this. That's why the Gospel of Luke starts and ends with women who believe and is full of beggars and tax collectors and lepers and prostitutes who believe, but priests and scribes reject Jesus. Good, upstanding religious leaders reject Jesus. Not universally, right? We just saw Joseph of Arimathea. You know, modern readers might see this as supporting some kind of ideology where there's, you know, two kinds of people. There's the oppressed and the oppressors, and the oppressed are always on the side of truth and right. As we saw some time ago in the Amos series, you know, God does care about justice and does care about oppression, but there's a deeper issue from the gospel perspective. As we've been saying, there are two kinds of people, but the two kinds of people are the sinners who think they're righteous and sinners who know that they are not. And again, Jesus did not come to pat self-righteous people on the head and tell them what a good job they're doing and give them their reward. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, to save sinners through his death, to justify them by clothing them in his own righteousness. That's why Jesus reaches out to people who know their need, whether they've come to confront really their own sin and weakness and cowardice as, as Peter did, or whether they're, they're just people that the world doesn't really look on as having a lot of righteousness, like women or slaves or whoever else. In other words, Luke is showing us the relationship between what we might call the doctrines of faith alone and scripture alone, That's sola fide and sola scriptura, if you like Latin phrases. You know, in Luke, we've seen, again, priests, scribes who spend their entire lives studying and teaching the scriptures completely miss the point of the scriptures. And meanwhile, supposedly weak-minded women believe and Peter, the failure, runs to the empty tomb. To understand the scriptures are right, we need to trust God and trust that God has spoken the gospel is not for those who are smart enough to determine that it's true by rational examination, not for those who had the good sense to realize that it's true. We don't accomplish our own salvation by good works, whether we do those works with our hands or with our heads, right? It's not salvation by right theology or salvation by intellectual rigor or salvation by common sense. All of those things have their place. I'm not saying don't think. 
right? Please do think. But that's not how we are saved. That's not how the gospel works. And I think in heaven there will be plenty of people who had wrong theology. Some of my theology is probably wrong. I don't know what it is, but I'm sure there's something that, that, I'm, that I'm off on, right? Heaven will be filled with people who have had sloppy thinking, maybe even people who have had a general lack of common sense. So we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And all of that depends on God's gracious revelation of himself in his word. Faith is essentially trust. We trust Christ. We trust that his death has paid for our sins and that his righteousness, his resurrection is our justification. We trust this is true because this is what God promises in his word. What does this mean? Uh, just a few thoughts by way of application, and hopefully we'll have more to say in the parts two and three to follow and the weeks to come. But if you want to grow in your faith, if you want to grow in your confidence in the gospel, your assurance of your salvation, devote yourself to the word of God. As Martin Luther said, see to it that you fasten your attention on God's word and stay in it like an infant in a cradle. Just in my own personal experience, I found that to be true. The times when I find myself struggling hardest with my faith is when I am not focusing my attention on God's word. Second point of application here, to know Jesus to put Christ first as a church or as individuals, we must devote ourselves to the word of God because it is through the word of God that we come to know Christ and that we continue to know Christ. We don't worship a Christ of our own imagining. We don't seek him in mystical experiences or in visions or images that appear on tortillas or any other flatbreads. We don't primarily know he lives because he lives within our hearts. We know him through the word of God by the power of the spirit of God. I don't mean to say by that last point that there is no internal witness of the spirit or presence of Christ in our hearts, but you cannot separate those things from the word of God. The Holy Spirit inspired the word of God, the scriptures, and the spirit works through the word. The Christ that I seek to know through my heart alone ends up looking a lot like whatever my heart wants. But the Christ I know through the word of God has the power to correct my heart and transform it to his own. So we seek Christ in the word of God. That's how we know and understand. Same as these folks in Luke 24. And then third, we should trust not only the truth, but the power of the word of God. Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher, famously compared the word of God to a lion. You don't defend a lion. You let it out of the cage, and the lion is perfectly capable of defending itself. James chapter 1, by his own will, God brought us forth. How? By the word of truth. Paul said the gospel 
Just again, the ultimate message of Scripture is the power of God for salvation. The power of God. The Word of God, says Hebrews, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and heart, is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Of course, Romans 10, faith comes by hearing, hearing through the Word of Christ. For us who have not seen the risen Christ, we look to the Word of God. It is the Word of God that stirs up faith in our hearts. So salvation, like creation, is entirely the work of God and something only he could accomplish and something he accomplishes by his word. He created the world out of nothing by the power of his word. And he creates his church out of sinful, rebellious, miserable creatures, again, by the power of his word. Because this is all his work. Faith alone, not our works, not our words, but the word that God has spoken and by which he works in us. So that all of this is to the glory of God alone. The message of Luke, the message of Scripture, the message of the New Testament is not about the power of faith, but the faithfulness of God in whom we trust, Christ Jesus, our Savior. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us your word We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, shown us your heart, shown us, as we sang earlier, the the righteous requirement that we have fallen short of. It is gracious that you should even reveal to us the way, even though we cannot go. We cannot accomplish it, so we need to know that, and uh, you have gone even further than that and shown us in your word and in the word made flesh that you are a God of salvation. You are full of mercy and grace. We thank you that you have poured out your grace in your son, and we thank you and for the gift of your word that we might know you, know Christ, know the salvation that you have graciously given us. Know that we have a God who is faithful to his promises. Uh, We do confess that in so many ways we have lived as though you are not trustworthy. We have failed to believe the message that we have heard, uh, just like the first disciples. And we have put our trust in other messages, other idols, false gods, offering us false gospels, hope of salvation in pleasure, in success, in self-righteousness by any other name. We ask that you would impress your word deep upon our hearts. Help us to see the surpassing worth of Christ. 
that he shines brighter than any of the idols that we would worship. Focus our hearts on your word and through your spirit help us to see in scripture the glory of the Son and the Father full of grace and truth that you might pry the idols out of our hands. Help us to cling by faith to Christ alone so that the glory would be to you and to you alone. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.